Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another presentation of the Raw Talk podcast, where scientists talk and we listen. For our 29th episode, we hear from Dr. Brad Waters, a senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center whose group has been working to characterize the heterogeneity of tumors, largely in an attempt to understand and treat what is probably one of the most complex and multifaceted cluster of human diseases. Oh, and another small detail. Dr. Waters is also the Executive Vice President of Research at the University Health Network, the largest hospital network in Canada. In collaboration with other administrative members, he's currently helping make decisions that will ultimately shape the way that healthcare is delivered at the UHN and envisions a system where research and care are tightly integrated. Yeah, just try to find a more iconic duo than that. As always, please reach out to us on social media at Raw Talk Podcast and let us know what you thought of this episode. All right. Let's begin. This is actually kind of funny because the first time I had met you, we had only met very briefly, but I was taking a course in molecular biophysics and there was a cancer lecture. This was several years ago already. And uh, Oh yeah? That's right, yeah. When, this, when was that? This would have been probably f spring of 2011, Okay. if you remember that course. And so you were doing the cancer course, and what okay. I took away from your talk at the time, and I remember I had to write an assignment on that as well, tumor hypoxia. So tumor heterogeneity yeah. was a big thing. Yeah. So you were talking about how we have to understand the tumor microenvironment, and that there's a lot of different factors that influence tumor heterogeneity, and that the biology driving that has important consequences for how these tumors form and grow. So what exactly does that mean on a cellular and molecular level, and, and what does it actually mean for the patients? Well, uh, tumor hypoxia, um, which means uh, areas of low oxygen in tumors, it's, it's a very common feature of a lot of solid human tumors. And, you know, the reason that I'm interested in it is because it helps to contribute to both the heterogeneity in phenotypic properties that, that occur with both within tumors and across patients. And this has become very important in the context of treatments that are reasonably effective for patients. So when we have good therapies, therapies that are able to kill the vast majority of tumor cells effectively, what become important for determining success or failure are often rare cells that have different phenotypic properties that allow them to be resistant to the therapy, to escape the therapy because they, they're biologically distinct. And even when those cells are extremely rare, when we have very effective therapies, they become the determining cells of success or failure. They In this become, case, it's almost like the strongest link. That's right. They become treatment limiting. And we've seen this in patients treated with radiotherapy for many, many years. We've actually known this probably for 50 years, that if a patient has hypoxic cells in their tumor, those cells are going to be resistant to the radiotherapy, and they're going to lead to a relapse and regrowth of the tumor. And so th there's been a lot of interest in trying to understand, you know, why do some tumors have hypoxia and other tumors don't, and, and what determines overall levels in patients. And then also trying to understand from a biological perspective, how is hypoxia changing those cells to give them properties that lead to resistance to therapy or lead to more aggressive disease and, and lead to, to metastasis and so on. Right. Because uh, to the biology student, it almost seems counterintuitive that 
shutting down the supply of oxygen to this tumor population would almost be good. But how is it that doing exactly. so makes yeah. it more aggressive? It should. I mean, it, you know, it, put, it creates a lot of stress inside the tumor. Those cells very often do die when they are exposed to hypoxia or, or, or hypoxia for a long period of time. But there's two things that happen. One is that this is because this is a very common feature. Tumor cells are sort of proliferating out of control. They typically outgrow their vascular system very quickly, and so they develop hypoxia. And so what has to happen during tumor evolution is that tumors learn how to adapt to that stress. And sometimes it even drives selection of mutations that create tolerance to hypoxia. So one of the early observations that was made in the 1990s is that the uh, tumor suppressor P53, which is very commonly mutated in, in human tumors, its loss or its inactivation contributes to tolerance to hypoxia because P53 contributes into hypoxia-induced cell death. And so it becomes an environment for selection of mutations that lead to aggressive disease. That's very fascinating. It almost sounds like natural selection at work. It, it is very much natural selection at work, and that helps to you know, drive the emergence of properties that allow tolerance, that allow survival to hypoxia. And then once that happens, those cells then become biologically affected by the, by the low oxygen. So we have very elaborate systems for our cells to sense oxygen or to sense hypoxia, lack of oxygen, and adapt to it. And this includes the changes in metabolism that, that mediate survival under conditions where we can't do oxidative respiration and, and produce ATP efficiently. And those, those changes that, that are elicited in cells that are hypoxic can also confer unique properties, selective properties that change those cells. And, and we know now that those cells have substantially different metabolism. They secrete factors that elicit angiogenesis to occur. And there's increasing evidence that they're also associated with properties that increase migratory behavior, epithelial to mesenchymal uh, transition, so they're more mobile and also can even uh, incur or uh, create stem cell-like properties in those cells that allow them, you know, more self-renewal capacity. Scary. So is hypoxia a hallmark of just about every aggressive tumor, or is it localized to certain types? Well, it's been observed in, in just about all solid tumors that have been looked at. Uh, there's more evidence in some than others, and, and actually one of the challenges in the field is actually to be able to observe the levels of hypoxia that are present. Our best data actually come from accessible tumors that you can insert an oxygen needle electrode into and actually measure hypoxia. And so we know a lot about the oxygenation status of head and neck cancers, of breast cancers, and cervical cancers, prostate cancers, the, the cancers that we can actually access. It's not an efficient way to do it. It's not an easy way. It's very invasive. And, and there's a lot of effort going on to try to develop non-invasive imaging-based approaches to be able to measure. Because one of the interesting aspects is that the levels of hypoxia differ markedly across patients and in ways that are unpredictable based on other factors or other clinical variables that we assess typically in those patients. And so it's kind of an uncontrolled variable, something we don't know when a patient comes in but which we know ultimately is going to affect their prognosis and their response to therapy. Right. And you're involved in several active trials, and you were also mentioning to me earlier that it's uh, precision medicine that you're going for? Yeah, so we have a very big hypoxia program, and I'm one of uh, a large number of other principal investigators that are 
exploring the biology of the disease, uh, opportunities for treatment, developing new kinds of therapy, but also clinicians that are actively trying to translate what we're learning into more effective therapies for patients. So we work with a number of clinicians and clinician scientists that are doing clinical trials. And and we recognize that, you know, because of this heterogeneity in patients and across patients, to do effective clinical trials for patients around the area of, of hypoxia, we need to do it in a way that's matched to our understanding of those individual patients. So number one is that, you know, you want to include patients on trials that we know have hypoxic tumors. And this typically hasn't been done in the past. And when you give a a hypoxia design therapy to a patient that doesn't have hypoxia in their tumors, you can't help them. And so it reduces the power of those trials. It it gives patients therapy that's not going to be effective, that can potentially harm them. And so we're, we're developing more personalized approaches, which number one means selection of patients that have hypoxic tumors. And drugs come into the picture as well? So, so they do. And, you know, there's a couple of different ways that we're addressing this. One is to try to change metabolism of the tumors, to try and reduce the creation of hypoxia in those tumors. Ultimately, the hypoxia is created because the cells have a demand for oxygen. They're consuming oxygen and, and they're depleting the oxygen in their environment. And if we can reduce oxygen demand or reduce the amount of oxygen they're burning, this can at least temporarily increase the levels of oxygenation in those tumors. So um, one of our scientists here, uh, Marianne Korczynski, did some preclinical work showing that the diabetic drug metformin could act to reduce metabolism, reduce oxygen demand, and, and lead to a transient reoxygenation of tumors. And so there are clinical trials now testing that. The other approach is to try to disable some of these adaptive mechanisms that get activated by hypoxia. And if we can disable those adaptive mechanisms, then hypoxia will kill those cells and be toxic to those cells. And that can eliminate them from tumors. And so what we've learned about those, the various mechanisms that, through which this stress leads to defense mechanisms and survival mechanisms, we're now trying to target some of those and, and switch them off so those cells will die. So it looks like there's a lot at work here. So you're talking about drug screens, you're screening patients selectively so that you know that you're able to target the specific types of cancer populations that that you're looking for. Immunotherapy is also something that you mentioned before, and uh, as well, imaging. So it's it's very interesting how everything comes together. Could you talk a little bit about the immunotherapy uh, portion? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it it is a very diverse group of scientists and and people who are interested. And and of course, you know, immune therapy and, and immunology and cancer has become a very active area. And, and, and it's very clear now that tumor cells develop ways to evade the immune system uh, as they're being developed. And, and one of those is also through these unique environments. And, and hypoxia is, acts as a suppressive environment for the immune system. And areas of hypoxia can shut down, create localized immunosuppressive environments, shut down the, the activity of some of the immune cell populations or lead to the activation of immune suppressor cells. So you know, by eliminating hypoxia, you can also eliminate that, that immunosuppressive environment. Or you can think of ways of potentially of, of reactivating immune cells in those environments through some of the, you know, the newer drugs that have come around. And uh, you mentioned some of the work of Dr. Marianne Korczynski, and you actually share a lab together, and you also happen to be married. How did that partnership come about, and, and were you always interested in cancer? Yeah, I mean, so I met Marianne at a meeting uh, in the field of cancer and, uh, and cancer research. And, Over some uh, poster walks? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, we worked together in Europe um, at, a, at a university in, uh, in the Netherlands, and, uh, and then both were recruited back to Princess Margaret. So, you know, we share research interests, we share a research lab, and we, we share the rest of our lives together. But, you know, that, and that sounds, you know, some people sort of ask me about that sort of 24-7, right? <laughs> but, you know, she's got her own research career here and, and her own uh, research group. And, uh, we, you know, we, we don't always in, even interact a, a whole lot at work. But it, it creates also a shared understanding of, you know, of what research is like. It's, it's not an uncommon fact anymore that a lot of researchers are married to other researchers. And it you know, there's a, there's a huge dedication to this job. There's a lot of after-hours work, and, you know, you have that inherent understanding and appreciation of, of, of that dedication that each other put towards that. Absolutely. So what's your early education background? So I came actually um, kind of from a, a different route. I, my, my background was in uh, education was in physics. Uh, my first degree was in engineering physics, and you know, I went to university interested in science and, and, and did that through engineering. And it, it teaches you to think analytically. It actually prepares you, I think, to be a good scientist. But when I did my graduate work, that started off in, a, in medical biophysics at, at UBC. You know, that work was in cancer and around cancer. It was sort of more technical and, and physics related. But I increasingly got interested in the biology of the, of the disease. And, and, you know, we've gone through a very interesting time in biology and have learned incredible amounts about the biology of cancer, and that's really what I became passionate about. So when I moved to Stanford and did a postdoctoral fellowship there, I got into very interested in the molecular biology of, of cancer and, and the role of hypoxia in the microenvironment, and that's really what's driven my interest for the remainder of my career. And how did you, how did you find your way back to the UHN? You know, my first job after a postdoc, I got a scientist position in, at the university um, in Ottawa, at the cancer center there, and I was recruited to the Netherlands a couple of years later, became professor there and had a large research group lived there for seven years and then had an opportunity to come back to Princess Margaret. And I had known many of the scientists and researchers here. Princess Margaret is a fantastic world-renowned cancer center. And, you know, I think I had, had always thought I'd probably return to North America at some point, And it was a great opportunity to come back and be part of a, you know, a, a, a huge cancer center and in an environment with the university and, and all of the other strong research institutes that are co-located here in the same place it's it's been a fantastic move and a, and a great opportunity for me from a both a research and career perspective and more recently you've added a much bigger piece to your story as you were recently appointed the executive vice president of science and research at uhn which i think you told me earlier was the largest hospital in canada it's the largest research hospital in canada yeah and Last year, our annual research uh, rev- uh, budget was almost $400 million, so it, it makes us uh, by far the largest research hospital in Canada, um, and includes not only the Princess Margaret, there are four hospitals in, at UHN and five research institutes. And what are those? So that's the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, this Toronto General Research Institute that's associated with the T- Toronto General Hospital, the Kremble Research Institute associated with the Toronto Western Hospital, the Toronto Rehab Institute, and the Techna Institute. So for me personally, you know, I, I spent two years as the research director of Princess Margaret, and that's really, I had the opportunity to, you know, to lead that institute and to participate really in, in the, the projects of, of all of our scientists. And, you know, for me personally, I got a lot of reward out of, out of being in that role and being able to 
to assist in the success of others. And when the opportunity came to move into into this role, it was uh, an exciting one for me, but also a challenging one because it you know it really stretches my own knowledge around many of these other areas of research and research interests. But it's been a fantastic learning experience for me too. So the listener must be wondering what exactly do you do? (laughs) Well, my job here is to make us a world-class and renowned research institute. And that means partially creating the environment for success for, uh, for others. And we do that through, you know, creating competitive uh, environments and uh, access to infrastructure and resources and services that make our scientists competitive. And it also means setting strategy and direction. And, you know, what our real opportunity here is in the concept of a research hospital is to integrate the expertise that we have in the clinical and basic uh, domains um, to incentivize those teams to come together and tackle problems of unmet need in, in patient populations that individuals and individual labs or individual clinicians really can't do on their own. And it's, it's really the power of being in such a, a great environment and, and the association of a great university like the University of Toronto. And there's a lot of talk among scientists about collaboration, and uh, that sounds like it fits very well into this this goal, this vision. So how exactly would one go about integrating all the research with the practice that's going on at a large hospital network like UHN? Yeah, it's really around, you know, finding a a shared sense of purpose. And uh, we have fantastic clinicians here um, that are treating patients with world-class and leading-edge therapies. But we have a lot of patients still where we have lots of unmet need where our therapies aren't what we need them to be and our clinicians recognize that and they are able to kind of demonstrate where that opportunity exists and by working closely with our more basic scientists and and it helps set the you know the challenges and goals as to what we're trying to achieve and in some cases that means creating a much more fundamental understanding of the disease and a need for more, uh, much more fundamental research and, and basic discovery. And in other cases, it means you know translating recent developments into the clinic and understanding uh, the effectiveness of the new therapies and how to apply them to specific patients, all the way to changing policy and practice and making our healthcare system more efficient and more accessible and more effective for all. Uh, so there's a huge continuum there, and it, it's it's hard to separate now what's re, you know the research and, and clinical goals it's that magic really happens when those groups are working together and there's a shared sense of of what they're trying to achieve absolutely but it also sounds like a mouthful like quite a bit of work to do there so what challenges have have arisen or what challenges do you anticipate will pose the biggest barriers to that happening i mean there's lots of challenges um you know there are challenges around funding for science and for research in canada Um, hospitals aren't funded to do research even hospitals like ours. Uh, they're not funded to do research. No, they're, they're not. They're, and uh, Hospitals are funded through the provincial Ministry of Health, and they're funded to deliver health. Research is funded largely at the federal level, also to some degree at the, at the provincial level. But it's not coordinated with the healthcare system in, in a simple way. And a large part of this is, is a struggle for finances on, on the creation of the research institutes themselves, our, our research infrastructure, our buildings, um, our research scientists. A lot of the funding for, for these has to come from philanthropy. And we're very fortunate to have extremely strong foundations that raise a lot of funds to support research. Uh, and that's 
a big part of why uh, we are such a large research hospital. But it sounds like very much in contrast to how things are done in the United States, where there obviously is a lot more funding, it almost speaks to this need for collaboration, for all of us to pool our limited resources to try and work together toward a common goal, as opposed to maybe what you see down south, where you have one organization, one association that's really well funded, and then they're just kind of this uh, lone wolf that is doing really great things for the local area, but not much else around trying to cover as many people as possible. So do you find that there's an advantage to our system? Well, there are, there are, I mean, we do have some advantages. I, I think everywhere is trying to look for opportunities of collaboration and, and the synergy that we see there. And, and you see a lot, of, a lot of that happening. You know, other jurisdictions like the U.S. do have funding systems that support research in a larger way. And uh, that includes academic healthcare organizations that redirect profit from healthcare back into supporting research that we obviously can't do in Canada. But in Canada, we do have a, a single funder healthcare system, and we have advantages of being able to look after our patients from an end-to-end point of care, being able to capture information on outcomes in patients. And that's a huge opportunity for us. It's one that we're not fully taking advantage of, but it's one that we need to, to help exploit in the future. And you know, we've seen in research the increased importance of the patient themselves in, in driving research and in learning and, and driving therapies forward. And we're, we're going to see that increasingly. And it represents an opportunity for us to, to exploit. Right. So how else do you envision the hospital environment to be different in, say, 10 or 15 years? Well, one of the things I think, you know, and, and it's happening now already, is, is to really fully realize this idea of being a research hospital. Uh, that this is what defines us, it's what defines UHN, it's what makes it a different hospital than, a, than the five hospitals you might drive down here to, to come to work here. And it means it's a shared uh, mission of, of why we're here. And our purpose at UHN was defined as transforming lives and communities through excellence in care, discovery, and learning. And so it's fundamentally built into our purpose that we're here to improve care for patients, not just patients today, but patients tomorrow, and pa- not just patients in Toronto, but patients around the world, through dedication to learning and to discovery. And to do that, it really means to integrate that culture throughout the entire hospital so that we're not research institutes bolted onto the side of a hospital. We're right. really a fully integrated research hospital. And what does that look like for, so just bringing this back to cancer, so what does that look like for the patient who comes in and then is recruited to a study and then where they're found that they have hypoxic tumors, for example? So under this model of everything being integrated in research and practice, what exactly would that look like, the the outcome? I think for patients, you know, the goal is to have personalized therapy for everyone so that they're getting the most potentially the best possible treatment that we have to offer based on a really full understanding of their disease. That might be hypoxia and imaging. It might be an understanding of their underlying genetics. It might be an assessment of their immune system and all of these sort of advanced precision kind of diagnostic features that that can be used to help guide therapy. From an organizational point of view, I think for us, it means trying to learn from every patient that comes here. You know, in North America, only 3% of cancer patients are on a clinical trial. And it means that from 97% of those patients, we're not learning effectively. So you're only applying knowledge that already exists or... Yeah, it means that inferred. patients that are coming in and being part of the system, that we're, we're, not, we're not sort of understanding what's limiting their therapy or how they might be treated more effectively. At Princess Margaret, 20% of patients are on a therapeutic trial and 50% of our patients are on some sort of clinical study. 
and it you know that those are very very big high numbers but they can be higher too and what we'd like to be doing is is to learning from every patient gathering information and data from every patient gathering outcomes finding out how they did so that we can learn and use that data in ways to understand who needs more effective care what segments of those populations should be pulled out for new clinical trials and what areas of those patients that we still need to to dig deeper and understand more about the fundamental understanding of cancer in, in order to think about how to develop more effective therapies in the future. Hey everyone, it's Maria, and on today's segment, I'm going to delve into the meaning of personalized medicine and talk about how it fits into our system of delivering care. So the oldest reported definition of personalized medicine in modern medical literature is by Sir William Osler, who said that variability is the law of life. And as no two faces are the same, no two bodies are alike, and no two individuals react alike and behave alike under the abnormal conditions we know as disease. Now today we think of personalized medicine as something that goes beyond that one-size-fits-all model. It encompasses both personal goals and needs of the patient and is focused on developing a targeted and tailored therapy. It spans across various levels from identifying specific markers to development of technology to image disease to genomic evaluation in predicting risk and treatment outcomes. So there's this huge range in applicability, which speaks how important and valuable personalized medicine can be. But how do we make it a reality and a standard of care across various disease models? Well, if we take a step back and look at its core, the realization of personalized medicine is dependent upon both clinical trials and fundamental basic science inquiry. If you recall, Dr. Waters talks about the low level of involvement of patients in clinical trials. And this brings me to my question, well, why is this number so low? Although this is a heavily complex and convoluted question to answer, we can certainly begin to postulate and talk about some reasons and some possible challenges why this might be the case. The first is the challenges that patients face directly. Patients may be simply unaware of the possibility of participating in a clinical trial or what type of studies are available. For multi-center studies, there might be geographic barriers that limit the level of involvement. Then there's also the time commitment required. This may be a concern for those that work, have school, or have personal commitments that stand in the way. And to some degree, the connection patients have with the medical system can also influence their interest in clinical research. Another challenge is the cost of clinical trials. This may vary depending on how many people are involved, the type of methodology, the type of equipment used, and particularly in the context of quantifying the heterogeneity between patients and how they present with disease. This can significantly complicate the study design and require comprehensive analysis that may be costly. Canadian research is funded by the government primarily, and this poses a resource limit to the type of research that is funded and the scale that studies can be. Now, interestingly, Canada's Fundamental Science Review Panel, led by former UFT President Dr. David Naylor, released a report in early of April this year, which outlined that there has been a reduction in per capita federal investment in fundamental science research in recent decades. So what this means is that there's less federal funding today than in the past. And this report offers a series of recommendations of what can be done to improve this for the future. 
Some suggestions include a greater investment in independent investigator-led project as opposed to priority-driven research and the creation of an independent body known as the National Advisory Council of Research and Innovation, which would serve to advise the federal government on how to best allocate the research funds and how to coordinate various federally funded research endeavors. So what does this all mean in the grand scheme of things? What really seems to resonate across all aspects of personalized medicine is the need for collaborative effort across all levels. We need transparency at the patient level so that the patients can understand the need for active participation in clinical trials and that their involvement is a learning opportunity and a key factor for realizing personal medicine in the future. We need a system and infrastructure that nurtures the collaborative efforts and closes the gap between clinical and basic scientists. This is a vision that is very close to Dr. Waters' heart and something he's trying to realize as the EVP of research at UHN. And on an even broader scale, we need government support that can foster innovation and provide the monetary support for advancement. All right, let's finish off with the main discussion. And it's interesting that you're kind of involved at almost every step of the way, right? You're doing the research, which is very fundamental to understanding what is going on in these patients. But you also have this higher level role where you're sort of able to foresee trends in healthcare and and try to make sure that the UHN is competitive with that. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the very exciting parts of, of the job and it's what sort of attracts me to, to doing it. And it really leverages in, uh, on the, the incredible talent that we have here, the dedicated clinicians, super talented researchers, motivated graduate students that, that are coming and working in the labs. And, you know, I have an opportunity to, to be a, par- a little part of, of lots of those things. And, you know, it's really rewarding. And full disclosure, I actually want your job. <laughs> so maybe in 20, 30 years, we'll see. That's right. So is there ever any time for downtime? Do you care for downtime? or? Yeah, there is. And, you know, downtime's important. I've got a very uh, active family life. I've got two kids, and uh, one's playing hockey, and the other one is in ballet, and I spend my evenings and weekends with them doing that and enjoy it tremendously, too. So, you know, I live and breathe research and at work and a lot of the time at home in the evenings and early mornings, too. But... Toronto is a fantastic city. It's part of why I came back here is also because of the culture and the diversity in in Toronto and enjoy it very much. And it sounds like you've truly made research a lifestyle. Yep, it's been like that for a number of years already and uh it's working it's uh it's 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 uh, something that, that that i enjoy and i don't anticipate that changing great are there any initiatives that or projects that you'd like our listeners to look out for anything that you maybe want to promote or talk about a little bit more well i just think uh you know uh, we're going to be working hard on on really building this culture of being a research hospital of getting everybody involved it means our our students, our our staff, our scientists, our clinicians, but but actually everybody who works at the hospital and our patients too, engaging the patients in understanding the importance of being part of research, of contributing to research, and and rewarding them for participating and and doing that that critical role, and and I, I think also you know the the extension to how we connect to our community and making sure that everyone in the community is aware of the importance of having a place like UHN and hospitals like the Princess Margaret, not only for the care that they can provide, you know, our local residents, um, but also the, the important role they play in contributing to improved therapies for the future for all Canadians and for everyone. It's a real jewel to have here in Toronto, but it's a jewel for Toronto and it's a national asset 
having the community understand that, especially because they're also really important contributors to our success through philanthropy and through donations. That's going to be a critically important role for the future. Absolutely. Can people find you on social media? They can. I'm on Twitter, and uh, you can find me there. What's your handle? It's at Brad Waters. There you go. Hit him up. Dr. Waters, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and we wish you all the very best. I'm looking forward to more innovations coming out of both your lab and the UHN. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. And also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. You know, we've gone through a very interesting time in biology and have learned incredible amounts about the biology of cancer, and that's really what I became passionate about.